This podcast is supported by Zoll LifeVest. Sudden cardiac death is a leading cause of mortality in low EF patients with heart failure or following a heart attack. Zoll is proud to partner with your care team to pursue better outcomes together. Visit LifeVestResults.com to learn more. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. What's up, Cardio Nerd? It's Josh Safe, and I'm here again with Amit. And we're very excited to present another key installment of our Cardio Nerds ACHD series. In this episode, we'll be reviewing the Eisenmanger syndrome. And joining us will be Dr. Khaled Tuarki from UCSF and Dr. Sasha Apatowski from Cincinnati Children's. Khaled went to the Kingside University College of Medicine in Saudi Arabia before matriculating into the University of Utah for residency training. He went on to cardiology at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland and is now a second year ACHD fellow at UCSF. I can tell you from my prior interactions with him that he is an enthusiastic student of the field and I'm so happy that we have him today. Welcome to CardioNerds, Colin. Thanks, Josh, for the kind introduction. I would like to thank Cardio Nerds for the exciting series that addresses one of the most challenging areas in cardiology. I'm delighted also to introduce one of the known stars in the adult congenital heart disease world, Dr. Sasha Apatowski. He is currently the director of the Cincinnati CHD program. He went to medical school at Columbia University, then completed internal medicine residency at Brigham and Women Hospital and cardiology fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania. He then went for specialized training in adult congenital cardiology and pulmonary hypertension at Penn. Dr. Alpatowski completed a two-year senior fellowship with Boston Adult Congenital Heart Service. In addition to many well-recognized publications in the field of ACHD, Dr. Alpatowski had founded the Boston ACHD Biobank in 2012. I personally have warm memories of my first interaction with Dr. Obatowski during the pre-COVID times in the 2019 ACHD Symposium at Skimania. We've shared beautiful scenery and company, and importantly, we had thoughtful discussions, and I had learned tremendously from him. Given the complexity of the subject we're discussing today, I'm glad that a guest with Dr. Obatowski's expertise with us today to go over this topic. Dr. Optowski, as an ACHD fellow myself, I would love to hear how you got interested in ACHD. Thank you very much, Khaled, for that warm introduction. I remember our time in Slovenia fondly as well. So how did I get into ACHD? Well, I'm not sure if this will be helpful or not so helpful to know that it was probably the last thing on my mind when I started internship. I guess I'll tell you a little bit about how I got into cardiology because I certainly had a bit of a bias against people who wanted to be cardiologists as interns. I thought they were kind of gung-ho and I personally wanted to be a joint endocrinologist and nephrologist. Can you imagine that? Thank goodness I dodged that bullet. But as I got called in, uh, I was on heart failure service for a few weeks and then got called in because a colleague had a baby and got called in for Christmas and got called in again for an illness. And each time I sort of thought to myself, oh, that's great. Terrific. I'll get to do more of that. And I realized all of a sudden that I was one of those people that I really looked down upon. And I haven't looked back and I still really look down upon myself every day for that decision. Kidding aside, I really just fell in love with the pathophysiology, the physical exam. I think a lot of people, that is the case. And then as, as time went on, my first thought about cardiology is, what is this adult congenital? That can't truly be a real thing in its own subspecialty. And again, I was entirely wrong. 
And that's what I ended up realizing was right for me. And that I started doing research in adult congenital heart disease. And at that time, there was less of a clear path of fellowships. There was no ACGME fellowship. When I was at Penn, I worked with Gary Webb, who was there, and then returned to Boston, where I did my residency to do uh, adult congenital fellowship. And I'm very, very glad I did that. And later, I found out the heart is an endocrine organ, as we'll talk about a little bit today. Eisenmenger syndrome has endocrine and renal manifestations. So I can still live my best life as an endocrine and renal geek as well. I'm sorry, nerd. <laughs> yes, nerd, not geek. Well, Dr. Alpatowski, it's Amit. And I just want to say how much of an honor and privilege it is to have you on the show and learn from you. And this is our first time meeting. And the first thing I noticed was how proudly you're wearing your Cincy ACHD shirt. So your love and passion for both the field and the program are so obvious. And for all of our cardiators, let's go ahead and continue building the community and follow at Cincy ACHD on Twitter. Dr. Robotowski called us on not following the Twitter handle from Cardi Nerds, and we've definitely rectified that uh, <laughs> just moments ago. Thank you, and I, I forgive you. <laughs> Thanks. So, Khalid, before we dive into this discussion, let's get started with some definitions. Tell us about Eisenmenger, the who, the what, and the why. Absolutely. So Dr. Paul Wood had named the syndrome after Victor Eisenmenger, who first described this condition in 1897. There are three components that should take place before labeling a patient with Eisenmenger syndrome. These steps are first the presence of a left to right shunting lesion, followed by the development of significant pulmonary arterial hypertension that will eventually lead to the third step in which there would be some sort of a reversal of the shunt leading to cyanosis. The story doesn't end here. And it may be fair to compare these pathophysiological changes with the classic boiling frog experiment. As you all know, the frog wouldn't tolerate abrupt placement in a boiling water. However, if the temperature is increased gradually, the frog may not notice until it's served up for frog's legs. Similarly, we see adaptive changes that take place during the slow but steady progression in Eisenmenger syndrome. These include the development of secondary erythrocytosis, which will eventually lead to multi-system manifestations that are somewhat characteristic of this patient population. I think one of the intriguing questions when it comes to the pathophysiology of Eisenmenger would be, why is it that only a portion of patients with unrepaired shunts go on to develop pulmonary vascular remodeling leading to Eisenmenger syndrome? Is this driven by underlying genetic tendencies? I would love to hear Sasha's input on this matter. So I have to say that I appreciate the frog analogy. I suppose that has something to do with the 1890s being a time of frog experimentation with William Eindhoven and the EKG. And I guess that's somehow related. Is that what you're saying, Khaled? Yes, maybe. No, no, I don't think so. Yeah, it's it's a really great question. And the answer is, I don't know. And I don't think anybody knows the answer to why some people develop Eisenmenger syndrome and pulmonary vascular disease and others don't. In terms of a large patent ductus arteriosus or ventricular septal defect, those tend to develop Eisenmenger syndrome more than atrial septal defect. And it's been known since at least the 50s or 60s that the development of Eisenmenger syndrome in people with atrial septal defect is sort of idiosyncratic. It can occur at any time, whether it be in childhood or later in life. It can occur with medium or large size defects. And while there is a correlation with defect size, it's not a very strong one. 
So it's not entirely clear why some people develop it and some don't. And I think your point about whether there's a genetic predisposition to pulmonary arterial hypertension with these diagnoses, in any case, whether or not they're closed or left open, we do see that a subset of patients with atrial septal defect who have closure later develop pulmonary arterial hypertension. And some people with, say, a small ventricular septal defect or a smaller atrial septal defect, but more often with a VSD, develop PAH when you wouldn't think from the degree of shunt that that should happen. So there may be either a very strong genetic propensity in a subset of people or an independent association for whatever reason, whether it be fetal developmental exposure or genetic unclear. In terms of why BSDs and PDAs are more likely to cause Eisenbanger syndrome, the clinical explanation would be that they involve both pressure and flow being increased in the pulmonary circulation as opposed to an atrial septal defect where it's just flow. That doesn't seem to me all that much closer to an explanation, but rather just describes the most salient difference between those diagnoses consistently. So I don't know that that gives us a very clear explanation as to why that association exists. More recently, there've been a little bit more in the way of pathophysiologic explanation in terms of biomarkers or pulmonary vascular biology and more mechanistic work, but that's pretty limited. And to date, we really describe this more from a clinical pathophysiologic perspective. I will note that shunt lesions aren't the only congenital heart defect that's associated with a higher risk of pulmonary hypertension. And the other one I'm going to mention, there would be no link, you would think, from increased flow or increased pressure. That is complete transposition of the great arteries. So it's always been known, at least speaking to older clinicians, that people with complete transposition, even if they've had an atrial switch, have a higher risk of developing pulmonary arterial hypertension. And classically, those patients develop a split second heart sound. Usually they have a single second heart sound because that pulmonic component is further away from the sternum. So you don't hear a normal low amplitude P2 when it's not right behind the sternum. The only reason we hear it in quote unquote normal people is that it's very close to the sternum while the aorta is further away. But if those are reversed in position, you wouldn't hear the pulmonary component. So if you hear a split second heart sound with transposition, then you should think pH. But you could imagine that could be because you don't repair it until they're three or four years old and have the atrial switch, etc. More recently, there have been reports of transposition of the great arteries in patients who have neonatal arterial switches. So in the first few days of life, they still have a perhaps 1% risk of developing pulmonary arterial hypertension. Is that a high risk? No. But is it much higher than the general population? Absolutely. And so it does seem that there may be a propensity developmentally, fetally, that these patients also could be born with. Something you mentioned deserves emphasizing separate from what I was just discussing, and that is you mentioned that Victor Eisenmenger described this syndrome and then Paul Wood named it for him. And I think that's absolutely true. And I think the background is useful to understand sort of the contribution. So Victor Eisenmenger, I just learned that he was actually the personal physician to Archduke Franz Ferdinand. So all of a sudden we're getting into world history here. But he described this case of a 32-year-old who he met and then died not that long thereafter. Interestingly, we'll talk about perhaps later the complications of Eisenmenger syndrome, but one of them is hemoptysis and he died of a, a hemorrhagic infarct. And Victor Eisenmenger described a ventricular septal defect with dextric position of the aorta without pulmonary stenosis or hypoplasia. And there was even some comment at times on tetralogy of Eisenmenger because the thought was that it was the position of the VSD and the, the dextric position of the aorta, but without pulmonary stenosis that caused, because of flow, a right to left shunt. 
And this was sort of emphasized by some really amazing thinkers in congenital heart disease like Maud Abbott. And then by the 1950s, Paul Wood had realized that the mechanism was not related so much to the anatomy, but to the eventual development of pulmonary vascular disease. That was the key observation and discovery that made it a syndrome applicable to multiple diagnoses. This distinction is not consistently made, but when you talk about a Eisenmenger something, there are a few different things you can see. Eisenmenger VSD is a certain anatomic kind of VSD. Eisenmenger complex also is generally specifically related to a VSD that has a certain position relative to the aorta. That means that patients develop right to left shunting. And then Eisenmenger syndrome or Eisenmenger pathophysiology Eisenmenger syndrome relates to a shunt that reverses and is associated with hypoxemia, specifically related to the increase in pulmonary vascular resistance and pulmonary vascular disease. And Eisenmenger physiology is similar to that, but I suppose it would be a more expansive group of diagnoses that could lead to something like a complex cyanotic congenital heart disease with an aorta to pulmonary shunt where you later develop pulmonary vascular disease where it wouldn't typically be, say, the congenital heart defect itself wasn't the only thing that caused it, but the pathophysiology in the end is very similar. And so there are a lot of different terms out there. Eisenberger VSD isn't used interchangeably, but Eisenberger syndrome and complex are often used to mean the same thing, but they probably should be reserved for their own purposes. And I think it's a really great example of sort of medical history and thinking coming along from being very specific with poor understanding, which is actually why the eponym came in handy. Because if you don't really understand why something's happening and you can't really explain it or describe it, it goes without saying that calling it by some name and sort of pretending we all understand what we're talking about is a lot easier than actually coming up with a good definition if you really don't know what's going on. And so it came in handy for the first 50 years or 55, 60 years of its existence to have the eponym. And there's actually, anyone that's interested, probably 80, 90% of what we know and in a more thoughtful, clear way about Eisenbanger syndrome is listed in Paul Wood's 1958, two papers about Eisenbanger syndrome. And it's really just an amazing set of articles that goes through this series of cases that he had seen and describes his inferences. So I think that would be worthwhile anybody who's interested in learning more about Eisenberg's group. Thanks, Sasha. That's very informative. I think one more subset of patient you may have briefly touched base upon was those patients who would go on to develop pulmonary arterial hypertension after an aortopulmonary shunt or what could be classified as the acquired form of Eisenberg, if you will say. My understanding is that the longer time that would take place between the aortopulmonary shunt until that actually get reversed and the patient get the end surgical palliation for the underlying congenital heart disease, the longer the time, the more likely the risk for developing pulmonary arterial hypertension. Do you happen to know from your experience, is there like cutoff? Is it, for example, months, years, or is that something that vary from one case to the other? Absolutely. Any form of aortopulmonary shunt can result in pulmonary arterial hypertension. It's actually relatively uncommon with Leilag Tausig Thomas shunts, particularly the classic since the subclavian artery can only take so much blood. It would be feeding your arm and now it's feeding the pulmonary artery and probably more common with POTS or Waterston or central shunts. It's pretty uncommon nowadays in that people have learned pretty well how to size these shunts and keep a close eye on it, but it can happen. 
I think the more important aspect of that is that prior shunt can cause a mimic of Eisenmenger syndrome that is treatable. And as far as one can say something is curable, perhaps even curable, in that it's much more common than developing pulmonary arterial hypertension while it is theoretically possible to develop kinking or even occlusion, but definitely severe obstruction of one or depending on the anatomy, both branch pulmonary arteries. The patient can develop elevated right ventricular systolic pressure and pulmonary impedance related to an anatomic large vessel obstruction that can be intervened upon and treated relatively easily. And that's pretty common. In terms of an exact timeline, I think the answer is no. Presumably, the longer you're with something, the higher the risk is. I don't know of any data there may be that gives a certain safe period of time or a time where it's nearly universal. I think it probably matters more the specifics of how much flow there is, exactly what the anatomy and how the flow is going, whether there's additional load from pressure and the pulmonary circulation. But I'll just say that this is a pretty uncommon thing to see in adult congenital practice at this point much more common since these are no longer being used nearly as much as they were previously since patients are undergoing infant surgery as opposed to having palliative surgery and then when they're larger having complete repairs. What we tend to see more of is people later in life coming in who have had this back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, not so much of the younger patients. And so I don't know too much about whether there's a substantive long-term risk of pulmonary arterial hypertension. I would assume there would be, although I don't know of that. You may know if there's any evidence for that being the case. I think there's no question that you can have some burden of pulmonary vascular disease broadly defined from these shunts and it needs to be considered. Thank you so much, Dr. Opatowski and Khaled. Really, I just like so many things in ACHD, the history and the diversity in the lesions are very important to having an understanding of what we deal with practically with Eisenmenger syndrome. One other thing to note, which is quite tangential, is the most common issue we see with people who have previously had blalock tausig shunts, definitely with the classic blalock tausig thomas shunt, where the subclavian artery is tied off and then feeds the pulmonary artery, where you don't have a pulse or have a very decreased pulse in that arm. It's usually the opposite side to whatever sidedness of the aorta you have. So if you have a left aortic arch, you generally have a right-sided blalock tausig thomas shunt. But it also happens with the more recent versions of just having a tube graft between the the two vessels. And that is you can get kinky in the subclavian or no flow except through collaterals to the subclavian and have a decreased blood pressure in that arm. And that seems kind of like cute until you've actually spoken to an ER physician more than one time and had a 15 minute discussion before you embarrassingly realize, oh my goodness, I should have probably realized that the reason he keeps giving fluids and thinking the blood pressure is super low and not figuring out why the patient's not septic does have cardiac shock blood pressure is 80, it's because he's taking that blood pressure in the wrong arm. I'm not saying that's happened to me, but if you wanted to make that inference, probably would be right. I, for one, can imagine several calls that I will get over the next two years in ACHD fellowship. You just have to tell the ER physician, switch arms and see what you get. You'll forget. You'll talk to your therapist about it. From experience, I can promise. I certainly have been told about patients who've been in the ER on levofed, high dose, and eventually when the pressure was checked the other arm was just very high. So that could absolutely happen. And I think that's just that kind of speaks to how important it is to have an understanding of the history of these interventions and the diversity of anatomy and to have people like you, Dr. Opatowski, that can be called in the middle of the night. Not that I would advertise that. No, not that I would. <laughs> Sleep is very important. I understand. I understand. Dr. Apatowski, uh, just for the audience out there, what's your cell phone number? Yeah. <laughs>
thought you'd never ask. Stop that, sir. (laughs) But there are more and more patients that are growing in the uh, ACHD population. And not all of these patients are right next to an ACHD center. So let's say that we have one of our listeners practicing in the community and has a patient with Eisenmanger syndrome in his chart, but there's no ACHD clinic nearby. Or let's say they have a lesion, like an unrestricted BSD that they know is associated with Eisenmanger syndrome from med school. Khalid, this person calls you and say they need help with their diagnostic workup and whether or not they need to send them to your center. What would you say to this person? What would you recommend? Thanks, Josh. Let me start by saying that I absolutely admire every physician who's attempting their best to help such patients. But I think in this day and age and with the advent of the telemedicine that has been widely implemented with the recent pandemic was an example for that. I hope that the barrier for providing a specialized care for such a complex patient have been at least somewhat alleviated. So when it comes to the diagnostic workup, the best tool, which is not exceptional to Eisenmenger syndrome, are probably the history and physical exam. This is not limited to making the diagnosis, but for follow-up purposes as well. Initial symptoms may include dyspnea, reduced functional and exercise capacity, and cyanosis. Physical exam may help differentiate the underlying shunts, for example, VSD findings on auscultation in the early stages or before the development of Eisenmenger would include holosystolic murmur with VSD and a continuous murmur with PDA. The lack of holosystolic or continuous murmur, along with the presence of loud P2, as Dr. Opatowski have alluded to previously, along with cyanosis and clubbing, should make you suspicious of Eisenmenger syndrome. Also, the presence of differential cyanosis may also be a specific sign for Eisenmenger patients with PDA. In terms of follow-up, in addition to surveilling for cardiac symptoms, it is also key to recognize that this is a multi-system disease where full review system is appropriate. This includes asking about stroke and TIA-like symptoms, hemoptysis, headache, and joint pains, among others. These symptoms may guide the diagnostic workup that could eventually be done. That's great, Khaled. So whether a patient is coming in with a cough or a symptom suspicious of Eisenmenger syndrome, the foundations are still foundational. So history and physical check and check. We next sent the patient across the street for additional basic evaluation. So call it, what should we be looking out for when we get back that EKG, chest x-ray and echo? Excellent. So most of the findings in the workup actually, for the most part, are nonspecific. But when they're pieced together, we could arrive at the diagnosis. For example, the AQG finding may include a right axis deviation, a tall R wave and V1 consistent with RVH. The chest x-ray may only have subtle findings, with the most commonly observed being a prominent pulmonary trunk. And then an echocardiogram helps to identify the anatomy of the heart and great vessels, assess the RV systolic pressure from the Doppler jet across the tricuspid valve, and obtain a surrogate of the PA diastolic pressure from the pulmonary regurgitant jet. While not perfect, the flow across both RVOT and LVOT could be measured to calculate the QP to QS ratio. If indicated, we can proceed with heart catheterization to assist the hemodynamics, evaluate the direction and significance of the shunt, and determine the response to pulmonary vasodilator therapy. I would argue, though, that the most important test in Isaminger patients, especially on a surveillance basis, believe it or not, it would be the CBC and iron panel. 
we would expect the hemoglobin and hematocrit to be high in compensated patients. And iron stores should be repleted. Uric acid is also an important marker to monitor on an ongoing basis. This is expected to be elevated due to high RBC turnover. And it is arguably the reason why some of these patients are at high risk for gout. Uric acid also provides prognostic information in this patient population given its interaction with renal function. Other labs that could be considered include chemistry panel, bleeding profile, and B-type natriuretic peptide. Dr. Opatowski, do you have any other thoughts as far as the diagnostic workup goes? Okay, I'm going to actually simplify what you said, which is very rare for me, sorry. And that is, you said catheterization indicated, and I will say it is always indicated in this context. Every patient who has suspected Eisenmenger syndrome should have a hemodynamic catheterization at least once to confirm that they have Eisenmenger syndrome and don't have some mimic without elevated pulmonary vascular resistance. Are there exceptions? Yes, but exceedingly rare are those exceptions. And I think that the importance really can't be emphasized enough that you cannot call someone by the name Eisenmenger syndrome until they've had a catheterization that documents the findings that would be aligned. So you could have whatever you want on EKG, you could have whatever you want on physical examination history, on echo, on MRI. What other things can you do? An exercise test, even a lung biopsy, my goodness. Well, okay, a lung biopsy, maybe if you've done that. But if you've done that, you've probably done a catheterization. The point is that there are enough times that really smart, experienced people can be fooled by a patient presenting with some other reason for having elevated right ventricular pressure or right to left shunting and hypoxemia, things that are treatable. You can't miss that diagnosis even in that one out of 20 patients. And it's a low-risk procedure, a hemodynamic catheterization, even in patients with Eisenmenger syndrome. So I think that's one really important thing to emphasize. The most common group that we're still seeing Eisenmenger syndrome is probably patients with Down syndrome. It still applies there that this is true even in patients with developmental delay and other issues because the stakes are so high. The difference is whether or not you can stent a pulmonary artery or repair a defect and realize that you have eccentric tricuspid regurgitation or a streaming effect from an inferior cytospinosis defect from the IVC straight into the left atrium such that if you repair that defect, the patient will no longer be hypoxemic. So anyway, I think it's really important to emphasize. Thanks, Dr. Opatowski. And I just started my interventional training here at the Cleveland Clinic, and I'm so fortunate to have the privilege of working with and learning from Dr. Joanna Gabriel, who is an interventional ACHD physician here and will be a guest on one of the episodes in the series. Just so I sound like I know what I'm talking about when I'm in the cath lab with her next time, if we have a patient where we suspect Eisenmenger syndrome, what is the data we should be acquiring in that right heart cat? I'm imagining pressures to verify pulmonary hypertension and right heart function, maybe a vasoreactivity challenge and a shunt run to get QPQS. Is that fair or what else are you looking for? So the first thing I would say is that Paul Wood also had a saying about what you should say if you don't want to look like you're foolish. And he always used to say that fellows should be seen and not heard. That's what he would say. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> There are a couple of things. You're looking to confirm, number one, yes, you can look at the right ventricular pressure. You'll do that. You'll look at the right atrial pressure. You'll do a, a thorough shunt run. You will measure cardiac output by thick and not by thermodilution. Thermodilution's assumptions are not met when you have a shunt and you don't have complete mixing and you have streaming. And you're also looking for branch pulmonary artery stenosis and confirming whether or not the pulmonary vascular resistance is truly elevated. So that means measuring pulmonary artery pressure left-sided filling pressure, usually by wedge. Although if they have an ASD, it can be quite easy to go to the left side. You don't generally have to do that. 
sometimes you end up there anyhow. And some people do wedge angiograms. I don't think that's absolutely necessary. And there probably is some risk associated with it, but that may be reasonable. Pulmonary angiograms are not necessary. Overall, pulmonary angiograms do carry some risk. So it's really just a diagnostic right heart catheterization, but done thoughtfully and with a complete saturation. And there are details that will vary from diagnosis to diagnosis. So for example, a pin dentosarteriosis is not associated with any chamber where there's complete mixing. So it is difficult, if not possible, to come up with a single number that represents the pulmonary vascular resistance dependently. But suffice to say that you can get a sense of whether there is Eisenmenger physiology present or not. Last thing I'll say about that is if they've had a catheterization when they were seven and it documented Eisenmenger physiology and you have no reason to think that there was some remarkable cure, there's no reason to keep repeating it, but at least to do it once and have that document. Thanks. I think it really shows how the wealth of information you can get from a, a right heart cat that's done with this hypothesis driven and personalized to the patient. Appreciate it. You see, one other important piece of information that I would add to those who's newly in the cath lab for congenital cath, when you calculated the pulmonary vascular resistance in a patient with a shunt lesion, keep in mind that you use the pulmonary right-sided output rather than the left-sided output. So you want to get your QP to QS. So for example, if you have your output from the left ventricle as 5 liter per minute and you have 1.5 to 1, the flow for the QP to QS, then you would want to use that 5 liter times it by 1.5 and use that as the output to calculate the PVR because that may alter your decision on how to manage those patients. And just also adding another point, emphasizing the, the important point that Sasha has mentioned in terms of the importance of the cast in this patient population is that if you think about, for example, like a patient with VSD who would go on to develop what we call a double chamber, right, ventricle in which they would have some gradient through the RV outflow, those patients may not have pulmonary hypertension, but they could have uh, a right to lift shunt and develop cyanosis just because they have an RV. VOT gradient, and those are somewhat curable. Oh, man. I guess we're in the same page now. <laughs> and you really did emphasize that Eisenmenger syndrome is a multi-organ disease. Most of the manifestations, at least earlier in life until a patient develops heart failure and arrhythmias, relate to the effect of secondary erythrocytosis, that is the response of the kidneys to erythropoietin secreted in response to hypoxemia. I learned that from Lance Armstrong. He teaches the course on that. But essentially, that causes a bunch of issues, including possibly gout. And there has been some debate, although part of that is overproduction related to that turnover and also to decreased clearance of the uric acid. Also proteinuria, decreased GFR, calcium bilirubinate gallstones. I'm sure you all remember from USMLE stage one. What is it called? Step one, step one. Step one. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so proud that I left PTSD behind me as of this moment. Uh, um, that was great. This is a stroke, paraganglioma, and pheochromocytoma. Really interesting retinal changes of unclear application, thrombophilia, and bleeding, hypertrophic osteoarthropathy, kyphoscoliosis, and a lot of other things can happen related to the hypoxemia and elevated hemoglobin concentration that are worth knowing about. And it's preventing those things that really are the focus of care for the decades that a patient might live with Eisenmenger syndrome. 
I just wanted to add one thing. I was actually fascinated by the case series that you published, Sasha, that has connected cyanosis with development of theochromocytoma and periganglionoma. I think you may want to touch base upon that if that's possible. I also find that fascinating. And it is one of the rare questions in adult congenital or congenital heart disease where we really have gotten down a little bit closer to a mechanism, although the underlying cause is not clear still. Essentially, one of my mentors, Mike Landsberg, had noticed several of our patients had developed either pheochromocytomas or paragangliomas. It turns out that they're essentially equivalent. It just depends whether it's the adrenal gland or the tumor is in the sympathetic chain elsewhere, like a carotid body tumor. But otherwise, they're very similar. They have some differences, including whether they're more likely to secrete norepinephrine or epinephrine. But I'm not going to get into great detail. But essentially, he had noticed a few of these. I then recalled that back at Penn, I had seen a couple patients. And it just seemed very uncommon to have that many patients with such a rare disease among complex cyanotic congenital heart disease. So so we created an international multi-center cohort. Oh, what I mean is I emailed a bunch of friends and <laughs> asked them just to share all their cases. And of course, we got an IRB to do that. And then we received data on 20 cases. Just out of a kind of fun tangent, I went through the medical record, all the fancy search engines at Boston Children's and Brigham Women's Hospital and found 150 some odd patients. I went through them all and found the exact same five cases that I got from other clinicians. And so something like this, people remember. And the medical record is probably not that great for finding cases like this. And so there are 20 cases and 18 of the 20 were in patients who had had hypoxemia at some point in life. And needless to say, that in ECHD clinics, whatever the proportion is, well less than 90% of patients have been hypoxemic at any point in life. Now, some of them have been hypoxemic at birth, like patients with a Fontan circulation who maybe were cyanotic later in life. Others, like people with Eisenmenger syndrome, were not cyanotic at birth and they developed cyanosis later in life. And all of them that actually had blood testing had norepinephrine that was elevated and epinephrine was either less elevated or not elevated at all. And that tends to be associated more with perigangliomas and more importantly, with mutations in the hypoxia pathway. It turns out that since I was in med school, pheochromocytoma and paraganglioma have become even better board test questions because not only are the role of tens, right? 10% malignant, 10% metastatic, 10% in kids. Is that right? Something like that. But also it turns out it's the cancer that we have the highest proportion of it is explicable by known single gene mutations. And there are two major types of genes. One is in the tumor suppressor pathway, like P53 or multiple endocrine neoplasia or neurofibromatosis or in the hypoxia pathway, including Lindau and succinate dehydrogenase and hypoxia and useful factor, several of them. And I first got further interested in this because there was a new journal paper on familial paraganglioma with polycythemia, and that was a mutation in hypoxia and useful factor to alpha. So I was like, that sounds a lot like patients with real hypoxemia. So it turns out 18 of them had cyanosis at some point in time. And then later we went on to be able to, from five patients, sequence their germline DNA and then tumor DNA. Turns out their germline, none of them had known mutations and four of the five had mutation in the same area and actually in hypoxia inducible factor to alpha. Now, whether that has to do with mosaicism and sort of selection for those cells because of exposure to hypoxemia or some shared genetic cause, I don't know, but it's one of the only congenital heart phenomena that I know of that I'm pretty convinced is associated with some genetic cause. 
So patients with hypoxemia at some point in life are at increased risk of a paraganglioma or pheochromocytoma, and it probably has something to do with this mutation or something like that. And why that's important clinically is that these patients tend to deteriorate over time. Well, like everybody, they tend to deteriorate a little bit sooner than the average person, but they tend to deteriorate. And the ways they tend to deteriorate are often not that dissimilar than what you'd expect with an adrenaline or a noradrenaline secreting tumor in that they can get arrhythmias, they have heart failure and retain fluid, etc. And we often don't know why. It's a pretty easy thing to do a spot plasma fractionated metanephrines and it's abnormal, which in some it will be because they have other reasons to have high catecholamines. But if that's the case, then you can do further evaluation and then you have a curable cause of deterioration. Is it common? No, of course not. It's not very common, but it may be in one in hundreds of patients that we see. And so it's identifiable, it's curable. It also happens to be really interesting, I find. Thank you very much for asking about it. No, thanks for spending all the time to bring those cases into light. Actually, that had kind of guided us in terms of working uh, a patient recently with not Isaminger, but a Fontaine patient with cyanosis who presented with fib flutter and was very hypertensive. And eventually we confirmed that that patient had paraganglionoma. But I think that's also in patient with Isaminger, if they're presenting with hypertension and seems to deteriorate, I think that's also one thing to look for. Yeah, this is a great discussion. And usually, Dr. Abutowski, when I email a bunch of my friends, it ends up in happy hour, not an international practice changing registry. But be that as it may, (laughs) thank you so much for this phenomenal discussion and dive into the pathophysiology evaluation. And we're going to get to the management of Eisenmenger syndrome. This will be part one of two parts of the discussion with Khaled and Dr. Abutowski. So for the cardi nerds, join us for part two when we dive into some rapid fire cases. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, Cardi Nerds. We are back with Khaled and Dr. Apatowski for part two of our discussion on Eisenmenger syndrome. We are now diving into some rapid fire cases from the Cardi Nerds ACHD clinic. And our first consult today is with Mr. McShunt. He's a 30 year old man who was transferred from an outside hospital with sepsis and a new onset seizure with a known history of unpalliated cyanotic congenital heart disease. But he's had interrupted cardiac care and no prior visits to our center. So there's a lot to unpack here. Khaled and Dr. Abutowski, can you walk me through some of your initial thinking when you hear this type of story? Are there specific complications of his congenital heart disease you would be worried about with this presentation? Where would you start with Mr. McShunt? So uh, this goes back to what we have discussed earlier, that history and physical exam are the most important initial tools to help arrive at the correct diagnosis. In this case, we have a patient with long-standing cyanosis from underlying congenital heart disease, so Eisenmenger syndrome could be suspected. The presentation is concerning with a combination of sepsis and seizure, so CNS involvement is suspected. While a thorough exam and workup should be obtained, I'm most worried in my mind about cerebral abscess, and I would want to evaluate and possibly empirically treat with antibiotic until we have confirmation from imaging and microbiological results. This could be a life-threatening condition and has been reported in this patient population, so early detection is warranted. If this is confirmed, the neurosurgery consult or drainage would be indicated as the risk for recurrence and mortality are high. 
while the mechanism for the abscess is paradoxical in nature, similar to the paradoxical embolism leading to strokes through the right to left shunt, the presence of chronic hypoxemia leading to secondary polycythemia and increasing viscosity in the central venous blood may create a favorable environment for bacteria growth as well. And that's why we see this complication in this patient population. So for this patient, I would probably start with brain imaging as soon as possible and initiate antibiotic as soon as the blood cultures are obtained. Dr. Ptowski, what do you think? Everything you say about cerebral abscess is true. I think the one additional possible reason that these patients have an increased risk of cerebral abscess is that there are effects of hypoxemia on the blood-brain barrier and permissiveness to allow bacteria into the brain. And there is an incidence of stroke and systemic thromboembolism. It is probably higher than we appreciate, but it's still not exceptionally high in that cerebral abscess is something that is not that common. It is very rare overall. It seems to be as a proportion to the general population risk, much higher as compared to paradoxical thromboembolism. And as you highlight, it's a complication that you wouldn't ordinarily just think of out of the blue. So it's really important to be aware and have a high index of suspicion. Great. And with our high index of suspicion, this patient did have a brain imaging and MRI found a cerebral abscess for which he underwent a drainage procedure. Dr. Apatowski, are there any points to keep in mind to help mitigate the perioperative risk for his surgery or any other non-cardiac surgery in general? So yes, there are guidelines in terms of experience and whatnot that can help decrease the risk associated with surgery. There's surprisingly little data on best practices of perioperative management with Eisenmenger syndrome. Frankly, I, I would say that the most important intervention is having an experienced, thoughtful cardiac anesthesiologist who takes things in stride in this situation. And I will say that in one sense, and in an important sense, Eisenmenger syndrome is less worrisome when we're thinking about surgery than is pulmonary arterial hypertension with no congenital heart disease. That's because if you have someone with pulmonary arterial hypertension without an ASD or BSD or a PDA, the worry is that you over-exuberantly, systemically vasodilate, you decrease SVR, can't pulmonary vasodilate, so your cardiac output can't really augment, sort of like uh, critical aortic stenosis, and you can't increase your cardiac output, so your blood pressure plummets. And with that decreasing blood pressure, perfusion to the right ventricle decreases, you get ischemia of that right ventricle, and it only gets worse. If you have Eisenmenger syndrome, if you do the exact same thing, well, sure, you will become more hypoxemic because you have more right to left shunting, but it is better to have a perfusing circulation with hypoxemia than it is to have uh, a non-perfusing circulation with uh, a wonderful oxygen saturation. Or as the vernacular goes, it's better to be blue than dead. So Eisenmenger syndrome definitely has specific considerations when it comes to surgery. One is that vasodilation. A second would be that you don't overreact to hypoxemia. If you think about it in ICU, we often will extubate someone based on their oxygen saturations. Obviously, that's not going to be a great idea in the setting of someone whose saturations are 88% or 85% normally. There's a little bit of back and forth about filtering IVs since there's right to left shunting. So if you give a big air embolus, it can go to the brain. At the very least, you should be very cautious with your IVs and make sure not to administer air boluses. But a filter can be problematic in that you can't push things very quickly. A little anecdote, there was a paper from somebody who is an exceptionally good researcher. I will not say more than this, but in the paper, they mentioned that they did pulmonary angiograms in patients with Eisenmenger and they put this filter on and then they did the pulmonary angiogram. 
And I got in an argument with a radiologist and they said, well, we can't put that on because the power injector can't inject through a filter because it would explode. And I said, but look at this paper. They said, we agree. Maybe you should contact the author. So I contact them and they say, in our city, anything is possible. Meaning they just wrote that and they couldn't really put it on the filter. So you have to look at that with a little bit of a close eye because a lot of the things sometimes that are written such as that are not actually realistic to do. So number one, people should be aware that this is an issue. You should use filters if possible, especially when different people are going to be accessing it. But there's going to be one really experienced person accessing it and a filter is going to cause them to have a workflow that's very different than normal. That might be a higher risk than not having the filter at all. So you sort of defer on that point. The last thing I would say is if it's not an emergent surgery, if they have a very, very high hemoglobin concentration, sometimes we would do an exchange transfusion or erythrocytophoresis to decrease the hemoglobin or hematocrit a bit. There is experimental evidence that clotting abnormalities improve pretty quickly with that. Needless to say, there's no randomized trial comparing doing that versus not. And there are downsides to doing that, which we may talk about a little bit later. But with really high hemoglobins, you might do that in a non-urgent situation. That doesn't apply here where a patient is going to probably have to go pretty urgently. Thank you. There's clearly some very specific considerations for these patients. And I'm going to remember better to be blue than dead forever. I think this is fantastic curl that I definitely can walk away with. I and mean, hopefully a good number of anesthesiologists. Okay, great. So let's move on to our next case. Ms. Vivian Blaylock is a 20-year-old woman with a history of trisomy 21 who is known to have unpalliated complete AV canal defect and has consequent Eisenmenger syndrome. She has secondary erythrocytosis, as expected, with a hemoglobin above 17 grams per deciliter and an oxygen saturation of about 88% at her clinic visits over the last few years. On her view of systems, she has symptoms felt to represent hyperviscosity, including recurrent headaches. Her symptoms seem to peak every two to three months, which her dad is well aware of, at which point she undergoes elective phlebotomy to relieve her symptoms. She also takes iron supplementation and gets an iron panel around the time of phlebotomy to check on her iron stores. This has been her routine for many years. Now, Khaled and Dr. Apatowski, what are your experiences with phlebotomy in this condition? And when would you recommend it? As you may know, phlebotomy used to be a common management practice for these patients. And the thought behind it was to reduce the hematocrit to mitigate the risk for hyperviscosity. We've later learned that regular phlebotomy in asymptomatic patients was associated with many adverse outcomes, including iron deficiency, leading to exercise intolerance, and more importantly, an increased risk for cerebrovascular events, which is opposite to what you want to do preventing hyperviscosity in those patients. With that being said, phlebotomy is used nowadays only for limited indications, which include moderate to severe hyperviscosity symptoms due to secondary erythrocytosis and for preoperative purposes, as Sasha has alluded to. There is also specific protocol for the phlebotomy itself that should take place to ensure that enough hydration is being provided during the process iron panel, and sometimes iron replacement could be administered to ensure that there is no iron deficiency. So I guess for this patient, we'd have to assess how bad her symptoms are. And granted, if this is her routine and that actually does work for her and had no major problem with it in the past, that might be reasonable. But would love to really hear if Sasha have any other thoughts in this regard. So this is a really interesting situation. Obviously, when we have cases like this, we sort of simplify them. There's probably more to this story, but it would seem exceedingly rare that this scenario would come up. 
As you said, Colin, I would rarely think that chronic phlebotomy is indicated and we almost never need to perform repeated chronic phlebotomy for hyperviscosity symptoms. I think in part because we now realize that viscosity and hyperviscosity symptoms are not just a function of hematocrit or hemoglobin concentration. Iron deficiency itself is associated with hyperviscosity symptoms. Although I should say that there's different findings when it comes to whether it's associated with viscosity itself. But when I'm thinking conceptually about this, that it is because the red blood cells are less deformable. Oh, there's some evidence that maybe that's not the case. But either way, iron repletion is the number one priority. And then almost never do we get into this sort of cycle. And certainly not in a 20-year-old whose saturation is 88%. So I'd be a little bit worried that there's something about this story that doesn't make sense. People with trisomy 21 vary very much in their ability to express symptoms. I could imagine that if this was a patient coming to see me for the first time and the second time and the third time, I'd really try to get to understand the situation at home, understand why the family and the patient feel that she needs this. It just feels like a pretty big step to perform an intervention which is known to be associated with increased risk for stroke and other issues that doesn't necessarily help an issue just for headaches. It just seems like that is pretty extreme. And so trying to work to figure out, is this just the expectation that they've developed? Can we try to go for a year without it and see how they do? Because often these patients, once their iron replete and they get over the hump, they no longer need phlebotomy. And so it's very, very rare that we do this. As Colin says, when it does need to be done, there are specific ways that it should be done. And it's important to have iron repletion. And iron repletion improves symptoms, improves quality of life and exercise capacity, and likely decreases stroke risk. The other thing I just wanted to mention when we were talking about perioperative management, but it also relates to this as well. And that is, there are some spurious findings that can occur with Eisenmenger syndrome. One of them is coagulation labs can be affected by very high hematocrits. And a simple way to think about that is that you just have a lot less plasma. And so you have less clotting factors. And so you have to adjust the amount of citrate in the tube so that you get a reliable PT and PTT that reflect the actual coagulation status of the patient. Yeah, terrific pearls. And I'm thinking back to the Mayo Echo Board review course where Dr. Carol Warren's cautions about phlebotomy. Let's move on to Mrs. Ellie Woods, who is a 40-year-old woman with a large, unrestrictive, perimembranous VSD with severe PAH. There have been ongoing discussions about whether the VSD can be closed. She's on maximal doses of three oral PAH meds, the endothelin receptor antagonist mesotentin, the phosphodiesterase inhibitor tadalafil, and the prostacyclin receptor agonist selexapag. And we're in the process of transitioning her to IV therapy. She's had a favorable response so far with regards to her functional capacity. But her recent cath numbers show a mean PA pressure of 61 millimeters of mercury, wedge of 9, transpulmonary gradient of 52, with a calculated PVR of 5 woods units. Wow, Emmett. That's some serious PAH. Of course, we'd love to close the VSD, but the degree of pH is concerning. And I think we'd all be worried about how her RV would fare with a sudden increase in afterload. Kala, can you walk us through the so-called treatment to close strategy that you know we might see in this type of circumstance? This seems to be an area that's gaining a lot more interest lately. Yeah, I agree. That's certainly an area of interest. At least recently, both have been addressed in the 2018 ACCAHA guidelines and more recently in the European guidelines as well. So just purely number-wise for this patient, kind of maybe borderline to what could be considered for closure. 
but I'm somewhat also cautious here because if you also read through the guidelines, the PVR cutoff for consideration for closure is five foot unit. But at the same time, there is also recommendation actually against closure in patients with Eisenmenger syndrome. So I would love to see more of a trend rather than just a single encounter as far as the numbers. So like would love to know what were the numbers before those medication were started. Say if the PVR, for example, was like, I don't know, maybe 10 wood unit. And then with those medication, the PVR come down, the systolic PA pressure came down. What's the current systemic aortic pressure compared to the PA pressure? I think those are all numbers that could be factored. And the other thing to be considered also when talking the patient into some of these interventions that could be offered nowadays, I think the key part of discussion with those patients, in my opinion, would be having some sort of a realistic expectation. So some of these patients could still undergo closure of those shunts or repair of those shunts. In this case, if there is favorable numbers and after multi cellular discussion seems to favor closure, given that those numbers on the oral therapy with the hope that with the IV therapy, we're even going to gain better numbers, then maybe a fenestrated repair could be considered. As I said, going back to the Eisenmenger patients, I think the fact that this patient PVR is borderline, I'm not sure that this is consistent with our talk with Eisenmenger patients today, because at least in our case series that my predecessor, Sarah Blissett, have published with Dr. Mahadevan, our ACHD interventionist, we have seen five patients. One of them had a very high PVR and was meeting criteria for Eisenmenger syndrome, had actually no response to those medication and was not eventually closed. In this patient who had an improvement with the medical therapy, I don't know like where to draw a line to say, oh, this actually still meets criteria for Eisenmenger, or if this is a reversible patient that may not fall into that same category, if that makes sense. And to be honest, this is a highly debatable area. So I would love to hear Sasha's input in that aspect. Agreed. It's a topic of interest and controversy. I think there are a bunch of things to highlight here. The first thing I'll just say is getting back to the case, we mentioned that her transpulmonary gradient is 52 and she has a pulmonary vascular resistance of five wood units. So when I see that, I say to myself, oh my, PVR is a little high, sure, but the cardiac output is super high. It's 10 liters per minute. Now I assume Ellie Woods is not a giant woman. And so 10 liters per minute is probably twice what we would expect. So I'm not sure, but my best guess would be that there's a big left to right shunt. And it's not entirely clear to me that more pulmonary vasodilation is going to do her a lot of good, making her feel better. It may be treating our numbers and not her. And that, I think, is sort of what you're getting at with knowing when is the right time to close in this sort of situation. It's made more difficult by the fact that there's really no evidence. You mentioned a fenestrated closure, but acute right heart failure is not our worry here. And people do talk about fenestrated closures, the idea being, oh, you take a big atrial septal defect, let's say, and you make it small. And so they do need a pop-off valve. If they do have right heart failure down the road, they'll still have right to left shunt. They'll have the ability to do that. And that makes sense, except if they don't need it for a while, they often have it closed spontaneously. And then if it's too big, you really haven't done that much, right? And so there's no really good evidence for that. And people do it. It's BSD or ASD closure and put a fenestration in, but it's not the acute peri-procedural things we're worried about. It's down the line that you're leaving them worse off. So in a sense, they often still continue to have progressive development of pulmonary vascular disease. We sort of started a process. I don't know if this is quite a perfect parallel, but 
you know, you suntan a lot and you develop early stage skin cancer, then you stop sunning. Maybe that helps a little bit, but you've started a process where you're more likely to keep progressing on at that point. So I think that this process has more to do with that. And so what we're really worried about is down the line, five or 10 years, whether the person's going to be substantially worse off. Often they do feel better afterwards because they're not hypoxemic anymore. They were selected pretty well, but down the line, they can be a lot worse off. So I think you have to take a step back just as a principle. And I think there could be a bunch of explanations for the hemodynamics that we see. One is that it's a true finding that the patient is on more pulmonary vasodilators than is good for her, and she might feel better on less pulmonary vasodilators. And unless you're going to hypothesize that this really enthusiastic regimen of pulmonary arterial hypertension medications is reversing the disease process, and if it is, that's great. But if it's really just vasodilating largely, then you're probably not doing much good by having three medications instead of two or at the highest dose of all three. The second possibility is that there's a typo in the cath report. And a third is that the person performing the catheterization may have performed it incorrectly or had an inaccurate calculation. So they may have used thermal dilution to estimate cardiac output, and that's not valid in this context. As I think you were hinting at before, Khaled, the calculations for QPQS and flow can sometimes be confusing when you don't do it frequently. And so they may have done that not totally correctly. And so every time you see a patient who's had a catheterization where so much depends on it, and this goes back to that rule that every patient should have a catheterization who you're going to call Eisenmenger syndrome, it should be a catheterization that is internally consistent and was thoughtfully performed. And that's true here too, because in truth, the difference between four wood units and six wood units is very small in terms of if you go up and down in pulmonary artery pressure and wedge pressure and PA saturation, SVC saturation by a, a factor of 10%, which is probably a lot narrower than a real error. If they all go in the right direction or all in the same direction, just by chance, you're going to have a pretty big shift in your PVR. And so when you hear five wood units, even though it's a catheterization, even you think of it as a gold standard, number one question, the internal consistency and the primary data. And number two, always recognize that just because something is reported to a decimal point or two digits after the decimal point, it doesn't mean that it's actually that precise or that you can depend on that being meaningful information. So I think it's really important to emphasize that. Finally, there's really no long-term data on this. There's no question that there have been cases where people have treated and then repaired. The expectation is they will continue to have pulmonary arterial hypertension and need to be on medications for that. So the benefit really might be that their saturations go up a bit. They may feel better. And those are really real and important things to think about. But it's not night and day and you're not curing pulmonary arterial hypertension. It's not like you treat them, you close the defect, and you discharge them from care. No, it's treat, repair, treat, and assess more intensely than you've ever assessed before. So it's really treating one pathophysiology for another. I'm not entirely sure why people are so focused on it, because I don't think there's much evidence that as a strategy, it's clearly going to be better than doing nothing. And there's no really good reason to think it will be. I can understand conceptually why it feels good to close that defect, and in some people it might help. But getting from here to knowing that you're actually benefiting the patient is going to be a difficult path, and I'm a little worried that we're depending on anecdote, and we'll never actually figure that out because we're going along with sort of our gut instinct is, hey, let's fix it. And I want to apologize, Amit, as you start your interventional fellowship, ah, let's fix it is an okay emotion to have, okay? Got it.
Yeah, I think that just goes to show the importance of having randomized controlled trials, even in, in this patient population. Arguably, the numbers are going to be small, but I think that those are important questions to be answered to guide the patients to the right intervention or management. Yeah, and I just want to say that I totally agree with the sentiments about always questioning the primary data and doing your best to look at it yourself. Just I feel like in my time helping patients, working with patients, always looking at the primary data, just having your eyes on it can do a lot for you instead of looking at just the report. But I'm actually going to throw a wrench into the situation a little bit. And I'm going to say that we talked to Miss Woods and she told us about how she had a full-term uncomplicated pregnancy about 18 years ago. She tolerated that well then, but with sort of the objective data that we have, how would you go about counseling her at this point, Colin? So it's no question that pulmonary artery hypertension in general is a contraindication for pregnancy. If you look at the modified WHO risk categories, pulmonary arterial hypertension, among other urotopathies and heart failure, falls into prohibitive risk during pregnancy. And with this patient being on three pulmonary arterial hypertension, some of them actually are considered contraindicated during pregnancy. I would counsel against pregnancy in this patient. Of course, would have to be cognizant of some of the patients that they will eventually end up going through this no matter what you would recommend. So it's more of a recommendation. And if the patient still understand the severity of the situation and insistent on going with that option, then in this patient, I would probably think about admitting this patient to the hospital, switching that patient to the IV regimen that would be safe during pregnancy and maybe repeating a heart catheterization to ensure that she's well treated or optimized to the numbers that we could possibly achieve and then follow her closely during pregnancy. But bottom line, I would feel uncomfortable recommending pregnancy for this patient. Agreed. I think that one thing to emphasize, you mentioned if the patient understands the risk and still decides to move forward. This is one of the very few situations where you can't really just understand the risk of 15, 20, 30, 40% mortality and accept them, right? People still do become pregnant despite knowing it, but it's not something that you can say, okay, I'll support you through this decision. Of course, we'll support a person who is pregnant, pulmonary arterial hypertension, Eisenmenger syndrome or not, but it's not sort of a debatable, oh, you know, you have Marfan syndrome and a nine centimeter aorta, go ahead. It's that same sort of, the risk is way too high. You're talking about a person with Eisenmenger syndrome, both for the woman and the fetus. So that's something that um, explaining to patients, Eisenmenger syndrome in particular, and this does come up because more and more, the larger proportion of people who are diagnosed with Eisenmenger tend to be people from other countries. And culturally, it might be particularly important to have children, even though it's also true in our society. And so explaining that if their saturation is less than 90%, having small for gestational age and premature babies is the norm. And if their saturation is 85% or less, maybe 10 or 15% of the infants are actually born alive. So it's not as if it's a good situation for the fetus either. One other thing to mention, and of course, what you say, Colin, is absolutely true. So somebody does become pregnant, whether they didn't care for them before, they still decide to go ahead or whatnot. 
to do our best to make the situation as low risk as possible. There have been a few series where people seem to do a little better than historically. So instead of a 35 to 50% risk, you get down below that. But we're not talking about anything close to the normal one in uh, 10,000 risk of maternal death in the United States during pregnancy. So we're talking about several orders of magnitude higher than that. The one thing I'll just mention that I think people get caught up on, and I think it is a red herring, is you mentioned that, oh, she had um, a baby and did fine. And that's okay. That's fine. I don't think we have to make up some explanation of why that is okay, why she did well that time. Because the truth is, even if you have 30% mortality, 30% of the time you do absolutely fine and 40% of the time you still survive. So maybe she just got lucky. If you find a coin on the street and you flip once and you get tails, I still think you've got a 50-50 chance of the next flip being heads, right? Now, could be that you happen to be next to a magician or magic store and got a dishonest coin. Most likely, that's still going to be a 50-50 chance. In the long term, there's no winning strategy for Russian roulette. And that's really what you're playing here because each time you have a one in six, a one in seven, a one in eight chance of mortality. And so I think we just can't emphasize enough that this is one of the few situations where pregnancy is strongly contraindicated. Yes, thanks, Dr. Robotowski. And clearly, there's a lot to be said on the topic of the risks and potentially managing a pregnancy during or in the context of pulmonary arterial hypertension. And I would refer our cardi nerds to a dedicated episode on pH and pregnancy with Dr. Candace Silversides, as well as a multidisciplinary case discussion where there was a patient with VSD and resulting Eisenmenger that we had with Dr. Paul Forfia, Dr. Mary Louise Meng, and Dr. Afshan Hamid. In addition to another case from our colleagues from HEH, so we've discussed this a number of times and, and we'll continue to do so because it's such an important area. Oh, oh, gosh. Sorry, guys, we're getting an urgent consult from the ED. Victor E. is a 35-year-old man who is known to have Eisenmenger syndrome in the setting of a PDA. He's on dual oral pulmonary vasodilator therapy. Unfortunately, he couldn't tolerate Selexapag or IV therapy due to side effects, and he presents today to the emergency room with a large volume hemoptysis. Thankfully, our emergency room colleagues were able to quickly protect his airway and the CARS critical care folks are working hard to stabilize him. But while we have time to think and step back, what sort of differential diagnosis should we think of? Khaled, let's start with you. Sure. So you've kind of talked about that in terms of the patients with Eisenmenger. They have abnormal pathophysiology, so arguably their immune system is not as normal as patients without underlying shunt disease. So workup for underlying sepsis and pneumonia, I think, is warranted. I would still screen for those. Nevertheless, I think a large volume hemoptysis just makes me worried about other complex problems in which the two major pathophysiology that I could think of is either pulmonary vaso-occlusive disease or a development of pulmonary collaterals. So a contrasted imaging, if the renal function is okay, would be something that I would would aim for as well. All right, the CCU is calling us back. We've got to move quickly. Dr. Apatowski, any additional thoughts? I think that what Khaled said, it sums up nicely. And I think that this is obviously an interventional emergency. And as you're doing a CT angiogram, it makes sense to be calling your interventional cardiology or interventional radiology, depending on where you are, colleagues to, to get them up to speed on the situation because of the high prevalence of collateral vessels that can cause bleeding. I'll just mention sort of separately or from a chronic 
perspective, one of the most common reasons for hemoptysis is pulmonary artery thrombosis. And people often talk about pulmonary embolism in this context, but it's really much more commonly pulmonary in situ thrombosis. And actually, Candy Silversize, who you just mentioned, has a great paper from, I think, 2003. It was a huge number of patients, but essentially looking retrospectively at pulmonary angiograms, people with Eisenmenger syndrome, and it was just over 20% of them had thrombosis of the pulmonary artery sort of like laminar thrombosis of the proximal pulmonary artery. A subset of those had more distal thrombosis also. They tended to be more likely to be more hypoxemic and I think they're more likely to be women. They probably have worse prognosis, so that's not as well known and a higher risk of thrombolism and bleeding in addition. And so it makes it a little bit tricky to try to treat these patients chronically. So because of that, people have advocated for chronic anticoagulation. But needless to say, they also have an increased risk of bleeding. So at this point, there's no good data to support anticoagulation chronically. And unless there's another indication, we don't tend to do that. But it's just important to highlight that you sort of get stuck between this rock and a hard place. I'll also mention that classically, and again, Paul Wood's paper series, hemoptysis is one of the most common causes of demise, along with iatrogenic surgical death. Both of those have become much less common in more recent series. There was a series of well over a thousand patients, which showed hemoptysis was a much less common cause for death and heart failure and sudden death have gone up quite a bit. Why that is, I'm not entirely sure. It may be something environmentalist change, like there's less smoking, pollution, or much less tuberculosis. I'm not sure. But thankfully, it is less common as a cause of demise. It may be partially that we treat it better than we used to. I wish I had more faith that was the case, because it's still an exceptionally scary complication associated with not a very rosy prognosis. But that may also be contributing to some degree. Likewise, with surgery, the proportion of deaths attributable to perioperative mortality is much lower than it was in the 1950s. Part of that is that we're not trying to repair these patients, and rather we realize that treating them conservatively and preventing complications, maybe pulmonary arterial hypertension medications, there are variable approaches to that, but doing that and preventing complications is associated with better outcomes than trying to fix them. It also may be that we have improved our perioperative management for other types of surgery. But either way, there's been a big shift in why these patients end up dying, and it's important to note. But hemoptysis still does happen, and it's scary, and Colin knows how to deal with it, so I'm going back to sleep. <laughs> yeah, you know, jokes aside, this case really highlights the gravity of the situation and the dangers of Eisenmenger syndrome. So our patient, Victor, underwent CT angiogram of his chest, which is negative for pulmonary embolism, but did show large aortopulmonary collaterals. Our interventional colleagues, Dr. Joanna Gabrielle and her team, took him back to the cath lab and successfully coiled the aortopulmonary collaterals. Thereafter, he was monitored in the ICU and luckily tolerated the addition of IV pulmonary vasodilator therapy and did well. So let me conclude with one final question. I'm sure we come across this not infrequently. For Victor and other patients with Eisenmenger and such complications, Dr. Opatowski, when do you consider heart-lung transplant and begin the evaluation, have that discussion? So that's also shifted over time. I don't think we have to get into great detail about okay. this. Lung transplant and heart-lung transplant are options for a small subset of people with Eisenmenger syndrome. There has been a shift with the availability of pulmonary arterial hypertension medications, such as an even smaller number of heart-lung transplants and lung transplants are being performed for this indication. There's a report out of, I think, Nordic countries where something like half a percent of 
the Eisenmenger syndrome population might be transplanted each year, maybe one or two transplants each year. In the United States, I believe there might be 80 or so, and this is a little bit of old data, but maybe 80 or so heart-lung transplants each year, and a very small portion of the bilateral lung transplants performed are for congenital heart disease. So it's still an option, but because these patients are living longer and have other options, those options are probably associated with a better prognosis. And certainly with less scarce resources, they tend to be the first line. And it may also be that if these medications are largely effective for 10, 20, or maybe more years, by the time there is a need for transplant, there might be more multi-system organ dysfunction, making it a less appealing option. Either way, I think there's probably little doubt that that approach overall is associated with better outcomes for the patient. Maybe not always, but generally. And heart-lung transplant is therefore a smaller part of what we're doing. Still, if a patient has deterioration and is a good candidate for heart-lung transplantation or bilateral lung transplantation with repair of the congenital heart defect, it's an important and good option that should be considered and maybe the best option for that patient. Well, thank you. Yeah, I know that there's a lot of interest in when is the right time to consider transplantation and congenital heart disease. I think there's a lot that we have to learn forward. But anyway, I want to thank both Khaled and Dr. Opatowski for coming today. It was fantastic. I learned a ton. Amit learned a ton. I'm sure our listeners learned a ton. And Dr. Opatowski, I wanted to wrap up by asking you our every episode question, which is what makes your heart flutter about adult congenital heart disease? If you've sat through the last how many hours? Two hours. And you can't figure that out. I agree with that. (laughs) Well, fair enough. We'll let your prior words speak for your interest. We recently had a patient that we have been consulted about and we have our general fellow rotating with us in the ACHD service. And this patient was coming with this increased intracranial pressure findings. So papilledema and was examined, his jugular venous pressure was markedly elevated in exam, but then his echocardiogram, surprisingly, the IVC was normal in size and collapsible. So it does kind of indicate that maybe there is a normal RA pressure. So we're kind of worried about SVC syndrome in this patient where those finding was observed. And we end up catching that patient who had a history of pulmonary atresia and had pulmonary artery valvotomy and so kind of wide open 3PR. And you could see that his RV waveform is pretty much equivalent to the PA waveform. And his RA pressure in SVC and IVC was anywhere between 25 to 50 millimeter mercury, depending on his respiratory cycle. He was diuresed before and his kidney function kept getting worse. We end up finding that he has a mild degree of pulmonary hypertension with this marked degree of RV failure with an RV EDP, as I mentioned, was equivalent to the PA pressure. So we put him on pulmonary vasodilator therapy and his kidney function just normalized. We took him off all of actually diuretics. So if there is something that actually makes my heart flutter about ACHD, it's just this just amazing physiology that once you dive into it and understand about those patients and you know how to manage them, it just makes you satisfied. And you being satisfied is important, Khaled. I think <laughs> all of that, yes, <laughs> including actually our talk today, I think was intellectually satisfying for sure. Well, Khaled, speaking of feeling intellectually satisfied, I've got to ask you about your experiences so far as an ACHD fellow and your career plans moving forward. 
Yeah. So my experience in the ACHD training so far, and I've seen variety of anatomy and, and pathophysiology that just promoted continuous learning environment. I have spent my first year in combination of inpatient consults and outpatient clinic experiences, including pregnancy and cardiac treatment clinics, which is kind of a rarity compared to like what you see in your general training. We've had minimal pregnancy exposure, if I should say. But I have spent also time in the congenital echo, both procedurally and with diagnostic studies and joined Dr. Mahadevan in the heart catheterization lab. My second year of training, I'm hoping to focus more on electives and imaging and pulmonary hypertension and spending some time in research. I'm fortunate to have a very supportive program at UCSF that has guided me through this process. I couldn't really thank them enough, especially Dr. Elise Foster, who had actually retired this month after years of actually practice in the service. She has trained all the faculty in the department that have established it from the ground up. Thanks again to CardioNerd for this invite, and thanks to all of you for giving me the opportunity to be here today. Thank you very much, Khalid, Amit, and Josh. This is a great conversation. I really appreciate the chance to chat with you guys. And this is a ton of fun. And Khalid, good luck with your second year. Thank you, Sasha. I look forward to meeting you at the next ACHD conference, hopefully in person. Well, thank you, everybody. Really, I took a lot away from this episode. And I think that Eisenmaker syndrome is a topic that is intimidating to a lot of cardiologists, medical students, residents, fellows. So really appreciate all the lessons learned. And I hope our listeners got as much out of it as I did, because it was a lot. Thanks for tuning in to another CardioNerds episode. The audio editing for this episode was performed by me, Akiva Rosenzweig. I'm an intern in the CardioNerds Academy House Thomas and resident at Cleveland Clinic. Check out the episode page for show notes and references. If you found this episode or the show informative, please consider subscribing to Cardio Nerds on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a review. It really helps us spread the word and further our goal to democratize cardiovascular education. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed on our show and site do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. All Cardio Nerds content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by Cardio Nerds. Stay tuned for more engaging conversations and explorations in our upcoming episodes. And now, it's time to make like an S2 and split.